It's lovely to be here. This is the first time I've been to the five in, in this uh, building. It's very intimate. Um, I bring you greetings from the 8.30. It is a real thing. It's not a... <laughs> it's a building made doesn't exist, you know, it is real. And we'd love to see you there anytime. Please do come and visit us. Um, yeah, so as Lydia said, we are going to travel today to the end of Nehemiah. And then I'm also going to spend some time just asking, you know, what it may have to tell us about ourselves as well. So, where have we got to? The walls have been rebuilt. Um, in chapter 8, we saw that Nehemiah and Ezra the priests bring the people together, and Ezra spends the morning reading right through uh, the book of the Law of Moses. And the people are moved to tears. They feel convicted that they have neglected God and they have neglected the law. And so in chapter 9, there follows a time of confession, which Tim spoke um, to us about a couple of weeks ago. But then there's also a joy. They confess and they are filled with joy because they want to recommit themselves. They want to recommit themselves to the Lord and to the law. So in chapter 10, they make a solemn vow to keep the law and they call out three areas in particular. Number one, we will not neglect the house of our God. Number two, when the neighbouring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath. Number three, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or to take their daughters for our sons. And then in chapter 12, we have all this coming together with the people holding a great worship service. they probably have ice cream. So <laughs> the Bible says they're rejoicing because God has given them great joy. And it also says that the sound of that rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. So here we are at the end of chapter 12 and uh, they're living the dream. They have been set free from exile. They probably thought that was never going to happen. They're back in the land, which is always a massive thing for Israel. They have a new temple. The law has been restored. Jerusalem and its walls have been restored. And here they are, caught up in praise and worship to the Lord. And I guess we're, probably most of us know what that feels like. So this is a massive high. And Nehemiah's work is done. So he goes back to Babylon, back to his job. So here we are at the end of chapter 12. It's been a long journey. But here is our happily ever after. If only it wasn't for chapter 13. So, a few years later, Nehemiah comes back to Jerusalem and what does he find? So we are, uh, chapter 13, that's sort of 480. I'm going to be skipping around a little bit around the verses, but I'll try to um, keep us tracking. I'm going to start at verse 7. So, what does he find? I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms and I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. So those of you 
really good memories, may remember, right back at the beginning of Nehemiah. Uh, Tobiah was one of those who had mocked Nehemiah when he um, had arrived and actually had actively opposed the building of the walls, the rebuilding of the walls. So this is the guy that's now taken up um, position in the temple. But more seriously, this isn't just a personal grudge on Nehemiah's uh, part, Tobiah is an Ammonite and Deuteronomy and the law actually explicitly fits Ammonites or Moabites to enter the temple. So this is pretty bad, but there is more. Uh, verse 10. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So basically they've not been paid, and there are no services. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? And this is, a, this is a really sharp rebuke because the actual words of the vow that they took were, we will not neglect the house of God. And now this is exactly what's happened. They, they failed really spectacularly. So it falls to Nehemiah again to fix things. So, uh, still on verse 11. Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine and olive oil into the storerooms. And then at the end there on verse 14. Remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. Now what happens next? Verse 15. I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. So this is the second thing of the three things that they had solemnly vowed they were not going to do. So go on to verse 17. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same things? And one of the probably best known examples of that is back in Jeremiah, like quite a few generations back where God spoke to Jeremiah to specifically warn the people not to bring loads in through the gates of, of Jerusalem on the Sabbath. So again, Nehemiah has to take firm action. He decides that this is really they're beyond hope on this, so he's going to have to create a physical barrier. So we see in verse 19, when the evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Now if we run on to the end of verse 22, again he says, Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. So two of the three promises have been broken. What do we think happened to the third? Verse 23, Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And on to verse 25. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I made them take an oath in God's name, and I said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? So the sin here is not the marriages per se, the sin is syncretism, which uh, Lydia explained to us a, a couple of weeks ago, which is really about mixing your religions up. So it's kind of a pick and mix. 
So we'll take Yahweh, but we'll take some other gods. We'll kind of mash them up um, together. And this is a recurring issue in the Old Testament. I'm sure you've read this. Time and time again this happens, but the, the real big offender was Solomon. Um, Solomon had literally hundreds of foreign wives, and uh, 1 Kings tells us that he t- they turned his heart after other gods. And this is a big issue for Israel, not just because of the sin, but because of the consequences of that sin. The consequences of Solomon's sin on that is that God breaks Israel into the two kingdoms. Israel and Judah, and really everything is downhill from that point. So on to verse 30. So I purified Nehemiah, again fixing things. I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign. And then on to the end, again, remember me with favour, my God. So really our question here is, well the question that comes to me is, why has all this happened? Why have the people gone back on their promises to God? I don't think we should doubt the people's sincerity necessarily when they made those vows. You get the impression that they were really um, inspired by the Lord, that they were heartfelt. They want to live by the law, but they keep on failing. Now, fundamentally, the reason for that obviously goes right back to the garden. So the minute that Adam and Eve eight of that proverbial apple, everyone, including us, at that point, became slaves to sin, as Paul puts it. So Nehemiah was taking this decisive action to get things back on track. Are they likely to stay on track? We get the impression that even Nehemiah doesn't think that they will. This uh, prayer that he says at the end of each section, um, Lord, please, please remember me for this. You kind of can hear that voice that, um, they, I know they're going to mess it up again, but when they do, please don't forget that I tried, that I did my best, you, I did what you asked me to do. Because the Israelites, it seems, are stuck in this cycle of sin, repentance, forgiveness, because the Lord always forgives, and then sin. Sin, repentance, forgiveness, sin. And actually, Nehemiah gives a really neat little history of Israel's relationship with the Lord in chapter 9. I'd uh, just recommend you to take a look at that uh, later, maybe. Where he tracks Israel and the Lord from, actually, he starts in creation, he starts way back. He tracks it through Abraham, um, to Egypt, and out of Egypt. Uh, to Mount Sinai, through the desert for the 40 years, and into the land. And at every single stage, you get this. As soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven, and in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. And now here we are again, it seems. At the end of Nehemiah, we have sin, we have repentance, we have forgiveness, and we have sin. In terms of the timeline of the Bible, this is a pretty strange way to end this book. Because I think uh, uh, Lydia and Tim have mentioned already that Nehemiah is the final history book in the Old Testament. So this is the last word we have about Israel in the Old Testament. And where we've got them is just looping around 
Sin, repentance, forgiveness, sin. Sin, repentance, forgiveness. And we leave them in this kind of state of just looping around. That is the end. So it's like a story without an ending. But in another way, maybe that's not such a strange way to end it. Because looking at it from the New Testament perspective, if you look at it chronologically in the Bible, from where we are now at the end of chapter 13, the next thing that happens in the Bible chronologically is the birth of Jesus Christ, who is the only one who can free them from this interminable circle. So, what does all this have to say to us? Now, one of the things that, that's really um, helpful about the history books in the Old Testament is that they are, I mean, I love the prophets and I love the wisdom books and all that, fantastic, but you know, can I relate to these amazing prophets? Can I relate to these amazing, you know, David and his Psalms? Uh, not really, it's kind of out of my league. But the history books, these are people like us, or people like me, anyway. Um, and just going through their lives and going through this journey of faith the best they can. So it's always interesting, I think, to kind of ask, okay, would we have done anything differently? I would like to suggest, I speak for myself, that we have no basis for any confidence that in their shoes, in these Israelite shoes, in this place in Nehemiah, we would have done anything different. And the reason for that, as Paul says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. It's because of the cross, and only because of the cross, that we are not slaves to sin in the way that the Israelites are caught up here in Nehemiah. Sometimes when I'm reading the Old Testament, I think, I don't know whether you think this, wow, how blessed am I to be living in the time after Christ? Because when we accept Jesus as our Saviour, God gives us a new heart and the Holy Spirit to help us in our journey of faith. He actually gives us the fulfillment of the promises that he made to Israel through the Old Testament prophets. The most famous one is Ezekiel on this. Ezekiel 36. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. I will give you a new heart. What does that mean? And why do I need a new heart? So I thought, I thought the best way to explain this, really, is to share just a little bit of my testimony. So I um, became um, a Christian very late on, was 41, and I became a Christian on the Alpha course. Um, I was, uh, I was that person, if you've led Alpha courses, you might recognize this. I was that person in the group who was virulently anti-church, very negative about everything. 
Um, but gradually it kind of grew on me. And then as we were, uh, I went off to the Holy Spirit weekend, those of you who've done that, no, about week six or seven, go away for the weekend. And I kind of thought, actually, this, there's something quite attractive about this Christianity thing. And, um, and as I was driving down, feeling quite sad, because I thought, this is, is yeah, it would be nice. But it's clearly not for me, because I cannot be this good. I cannot be this well-behaved. I do not have the willpower. It just isn't, you know, it's nice and sad, but, um, you know, that's, that's it. So anyway, we do the Holy Spirit thing, which some of you I'm sure have been experienced. Um, I got you know, blitzed by the Holy Spirit and uh, Saturday night, um, cried for a few hours, and then went to bed. Really a bit dazed and confused, no idea what really had happened at that point. I woke up in the morning, and, and this, I call this my miracle, because it really was a miracle to me. Um, I woke up in the morning and I found that everything that I was doing, and I was sitting left, right and centre, stuff I thought I was addicted to, everything that I had been doing that I thought I did not have the power to give up, I no longer wanted to do. Left me completely cold, slightly sick, to think about it. I just didn't want to do any of those things anymore. And that is what having a new heart is. It was like waking up in the morning, like coming around from anaesthetic from open heart surgery. That is what a new heart does for us. Now, everybody will have a different experience. You know, this, we're all different. The Lord deals with us in the ways that suit us. And probably um, none of you would have needed quite such drastic action as I did. But, you know, in all in our own ways, that has happened as we've come to faith. So when God says in Ezekiel, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws, he means basically I will move you in such a way that you want to do this. You want to follow the law. And then Paul goes on to say that you know, we're not only set free from sin, we're no longer slaves to sin, but even more than that, we have become slaves to righteousness. And what does that mean? That means not only do I want to do the right thing, but actually I find it incredibly difficult to do the wrong thing. Because I'm kind of enslaved to the good stuff now. So even if someone tries to pull me this way, actually it's very hard. Even if I wanted to, it would be really hard. Because there's something in me that strongly resists it. So of course, receiving this new heart and the spirit is just the start. Um, we are still tempted as Christians, we still, well, I'm speaking for myself, we are still tempted as Christians, or I still sin, um, but we have, we have a start. I think about it a little bit like the, um, it's an analogy of the now and not yet of the kingdom. There is a now and not yet of the kingdom that we think about in terms of the world around us. There's also a now and not yet of our hearts. You know, the Holy Spirit has come into our heart, he has started the work, he will, we're told in the Bible, he will not give up until he's perfected it and until Christ comes again. But we're not quite there yet. So we can't expect that we're perfect all the time, but we know that he is at work in us. And what is this work that he's doing? So Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. 
Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So here we are, the Israelites trying to keep to their law. This is, if you like, our law. I find it very difficult to love the Lord my God with all my heart and all my soul and all my mind 24-7. I find it even more difficult to love my neighbor as myself 24-7, 365 days a year. And the reason I find it so difficult to love God and love neighbor is because I am madly and rather obsessively in love with someone else, which is me. I can't get enough of me. I think I'm fascinating. <laughs> There's not a lot of room left for, for God and neighbor. So this is kind of the human condition. Um, St. Augustine describes it like that. This. He says, in a physical way, he says that when we were created, we were created kind of perfectly, spiritually kind of perfectly straight up. We were perfectly aligned. Every single thing about us was perfectly aligned with God. Everything joined up, everything aligned. And then the sin of self-love comes in, and we start to kind of, we're kind of looking inside ourselves and to ourselves, and we become kind of sort of hunched up. We're kind of folding up inside ourselves. And what Augustine says the Holy Spirit is doing, this work he's doing in our heart, is he's straightening us back up again. He's bringing us, kind of opening up, lift up your head, lift up your, lift up your eyes to the, to the Lord, to the heavens, and getting us straight again with the Lord. So we are just Christ, Christ, Christ. That's it. That's, that's everything I see, everything I do is Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit is, is doing in us. And at that point, you know, doing God's will is not a duty, it's an absolute delight. That there's nothing more that we want to do. If we love him that much, there's nothing else that will give us more pleasure than to do his will. And this is the secret that the great saints knew. And they lived it. Those great, great saints, Francis, Augustine, Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross, they did the things they did because every single one of them, you read their works, every single one of them was madly in love with Christ. I mean, head over heels in love with Christ. They didn't make those sacrifices. They didn't achieve the things they achieved except for love of Christ. That was what inspired them and energized them and just drove them forward. And they could not give up enough for him. They could not sacrifice enough for him. They could not do enough for him. And it's that relationship as well that moves us into that place of great mystics, which is this, this absolute bliss of union with the Lord in this life as well as the next. So, just to close, all of this, of course, is just purely the grace of God. There's nothing that we can really do. Um, but as always with these things, there are we can go with the flow rather than stopping the flow. So what is it that we can do to kind of go with this flow with what the Lord is trying to do in us? And the answer, as always, is that we can pray. So just I suggest there are two things we might like to pray for. The first is to pray that we would want to live only for him and no longer for ourselves. That he would be our first love. To come back to our first love, as John puts it. 
The second thing, and I would say for me personally, even more important, I would say that we pray to be able to fall truly, madly, deeply in love with Christ. The reason that's important, I close on this, um, is summed up beautifully by uh, Pedro Enrique, who used to be the minister provincial of the, the Jesuits. And he says, Nothing is more practical in our life of faith than falling in love with God in a quite absolute, final way. What you are in love with, what seizes your imagination, will affect everything. It will decide what will get you out of bed in the mornings, what you will do with your evenings, how you spend your weekends, what you read, who you know, what breaks your heart, and what amazes you with joy and gratitude. Fall in love with God, stay in love, and it will decide everything.